And until then, I'm going to take you to various places on Sunday nights to study from with you. And tonight is in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter number 6. There's something really fascinating about studying the life of Christ in the book of Mark. Uh, as you know, and perhaps you've studied this before, a lot of the Gospels, especially the first three, tend to have the same stories here and there, just at different times it seems, at different places, and sometimes that might leave you a little perplexed as to how that exactly works. Um, and then Gospel of John has a whole bunch of ones that nobody else touched, and you see some variety in that too. Um, but what I like about Mark's, not just because it's a shorter gospel. It's quicker to read if you're just reading through it. But uh, his favorite word is immediately. And it's like almost every paragraph starts that way. It's immediately, immediately. And I say, well, that's kind of fun when you put that into the context and think how fast-moving uh, things must have felt to those who were there. And uh, so I think that's that's a, a really neat thing. If you want a really good study on all four gospels, and the order in which they came together, um, some of the books that are called Harmonies, Harmonies of the Gospel. They have several books out there like that, that will actually set them all side by side, and they'll show you the order in which the passages go. And that's a really fun study to do. Uh, if you're ever interested in that, that's, that is one that some of those have been on the market for so long, they're in public domain now. So if you're working with a software program, you might be able just to pull it up on your software because it's going out for free for many of those. Um, and I think that's a wonderful tool, especially putting things in perspective. Uh, chapter 6 of the book of Mark, we're going to start here. Now the story I, I really want to focus on, starts in verse 33 and runs to verse 44, all right? So there's 11 verses here I really want to focus on, which is the feeding of the 5,000. But I'm going to actually back up a little bit in the story and start with verse 29, and it's going to sound strange to read beginning in verse 29, but I'm just going to read 29 through 44 here. And when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, saying, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and spend two hundred denarii on bread and give them something to eat? 
And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were five thousand men who ate the loaves. This is a great one. We're going to have some fun here tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for even this uh, moment in the life of Christ that we remember uh, having read it so many times. But we pray tonight you challenge our hearts with this passage, for there's much we could glean here and much we could come away with uh, appreciating who you are. So guide us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's some funny things here. I'm just going to bring this up just for a minute. But when the disciples are looking at Jesus saying, what are we going to feed them? Let me ask, what was the profession of four of the disciples? Do you know they were right near the shore and they had their boats? I'm just wondering how that didn't fit into the story. But that's a different thing. I just set that to the side because I don't have an answer for that one. But I think, wow, that's pretty interesting. You ever hear the name J.C. Ryle before? J.C. Ryle. Some of you are nodding your head saying, yeah, I've heard that name before. Born in 1816, died in 1900, all right? Long time ago. He's probably not one of your next-door neighbors, right? He was, he was an English, English as in England, evangelical Anglican bishop. Is that a cool combination? Educated at Oxford, planned to go into Parliament, Interesting, really, how the Lord directs a life and changes through things, different things that pop up. Uh, Ryle's father went bankrupt. And when he went bankrupt, it actually prevented his son from going into a political career. Because that was not looked highly upon. And so his son could not go into politics like he hoped to. And it's interesting how the Lord led him to serve in the church instead. And he went to serve as an Anglican bishop. And most of you would say, well, whatever could come out of an Anglican church, that would, you know, be worthwhile to me. Um, This man, Ryle, has been an enormous blessing to a lot of people for so many years because he was a student of the word. He wasn't just one cut right out of the old Anglican stamp and and operated according to the way they did things. if I gave him a label today, I'd call him a dispensationalist. That was before dispensationalism was even on the map. Uh, he was one who believed from careful and very accurate study of God's word uh, that if you want to talk about the rapture, he could have talked about it. If you want to talk about the uh, tribulation period or putting passages of the Gospels in the right place, in a in a hermeneutical way in, in Scripture, he could do it. Matter of fact, he stunned me with that. 
Um, I have found that uh, he wrote four commentaries on the Gospels, one on each book, and they're just his thoughts. They're almost devotional in nature. They're easy reading, but they're long. They're very long. Uh, big, large volumes, about that thick, uh, for each of the Gospels. And so I thought one day I would just start listening to it. I found it on a uh, LibriVox, the audiobook uh, site. And I just started in on Matthew. I said, well, Anglican Bishop, what am I going to get out of this? I just want to hear it and see what it sounds like. And as I'm listening to it, the more fascinated I became with his teaching. And I'm thinking, okay, he sounds pretty good. But wait till he gets to those parables. Then I've got him. I'm going to say, oh, I found your weakness. You know what? This guy blew me away. Here's one thing, for example. He's going through Matthew 24 and 25. All right? And if you read those passages, understand them in their context, they're talking about the Jews in the tribulation period. All right? So here he is in the late 1800s writing this commentary on those passages. Where was the Jewish nation at the time? There wasn't one. Almost every single commentary, even guys like Charles Spurgeon and all the rest, had to take those two chapters and turn them into something a little more allegorical in nature to make them fit the church. He read through them and he says, well, I don't really understand this, but there's got to be a Jewish nation for this to have happened. And so they're coming back. That's in the 1800s. And I said, ooh, this guy's sharp. I liked it, and I've been his fan ever since when I saw him do that with a simple text and say, I don't understand it, but if I take God's word literally, that's what's going to happen. And I said, I like this guy. So I'm working my way through the second gospel now and enjoying that. And, and it, like I said, they're like devotional studies to just listen to his, his uh, statements on things that he's commenting on here. Anyway... Recently, I was going through chapter 6 of the book of Mark and listening to him and the feeding of the 5,000, and some of his thoughts were so thought-provoking. They stopped me, and I thought, boy, I knew this story well. And it just caught my attention, and it stopped me, and I thought, you know, if I wanted to share some of this with you a little bit, I would do that, and I'll tell you when it's his words and not mine, okay? But uh, when we go into Mark chapter number 6, Verse number 29 was a strange place to start. At first you probably thought, oh, wait a minute, is this the crucifixion of Christ? What is this passage? Somebody died and the disciples buried him. That was John the Baptist. And it starts off right away. If you're tracking the footsteps of Jesus, let, let me give you a picture where they're at. Uh, you could even do this on a map in the back. Uh, I love maps in the back of my Bible. If you find a, one on the New Testament and the times of Christ, you could easily map this. Up at the top is Sea of Galilee. And if I hold myself this way, this is the way you'd read it on the map. There's the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is over here on the west side. All right? And it's up closer toward the top. But Capernaum is a place that Jesus called home. Many times you'll see a passage like he went to his hometown and stuff like that. Not talking about Nazareth. He had claimed Capernaum as his home base. And that's where Peter was from and others, and that's where the fishing took place and all these others. So Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum. And it just happens that he had just come into Capernaum and uh, was ministering in the synagogue 
teaching them, and the people were resisting him. They were asking questions like, Is this really the son of the carpenter? Is this Mary's son? We know who his brothers are, and things like that. And they, they really put up a hard heart to him. And while he was teaching there, he, he found he couldn't minister in Capernaum at that, that time because of the resistance by the people. And at that time, he took his disciples to the side and he says, I, I'm going to send you out. We're going to send you out by twos. And you're going to go out into all the communities around Capernaum on this side of the Sea of Galilee. And you're going to minister to them and you're going to heal the sick and you're going to touch the lepers and heal them. You're going to, you know bring back uh, those who are demon-possessed and all these other things. And he's going through a whole description of what they needed to do in, in this ministry. And I could only picture them as a little bit shocked, <laughs> maybe a little bit that they got that assignment. Really? Are you sure? <laughs> or would that intimidate you? Go, go into this town and, and cure a leper. Really? Those kind of things, Jesus says, you're going to go out there and you're going to go out there and you're going to share the gospel as you go. And so he's sending them out and a message comes to him and says, John the Baptist is dead. All right? Now, you already know that that was a relative of Jesus on top of the fact he was a forerunner for Jesus. Did Jesus know he was going to die? Of course he did. He was God. Uh, just previous to this, John had sent him a message and asked him, are you the one? Are we sure? You know, and so that dialogue had gone on already. But that was recorded earlier in chapter 6, that John the Baptist was put to death by Herod. And we know that story. It's not a pretty story, is it? But John the Baptist had died, and the message came up to Jesus that he had died by the disciples who had taken the body of John and buried him. And then they came to Jesus, and they told him. So, I'm trying to put some of these together, and I, I'm thinking about this. Uh, what was it like to hear this message? You have just gone to your hometown. They rejected you. You send out your disciples in twos on an assignment of ministry, and you know that, that Jesus prayed about everything. And that would have been a major issue of prayer for them as they were going out. And then to get the report on top of it that John the Baptist was just put to death. That makes for a tough day, doesn't it? If all that happened at the same time, that would be a bit overwhelming. What Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 14 Verse number 13 is that when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So weave that into the story that Jesus had a lot on his heart. And it was a long day and it was a tiring experience. And then he has some grieving to do, really. Uh, I would think a human response to the death of John the Baptist. So it says in verse 30, now that's just our background. In verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. So they went out and did what they needed to do and they came back and they're talking about it. And Mark doesn't give you all the details, but they were excited. They were amazed at the things that happened. They were shocked at the things that happened. And they were all telling their stories. And you can imagine this wasn't a five-minute conversation. There was a lot in that. And here, 
All these things compiled together, Jesus says to them in verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. He needed to break too. But all of these things going on, that's when he got in the boat, that's when they went someplace else, that's when he decided, I need to go off by myself somewhere and spend some time with my father. There were many people coming and going. Notice that in verse number 31. This was his day. Many people were coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat. You ever have a day like that? That's a tough day. Put it all together and you can see what's going on in the background here. Pretty tough time. So they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves, verse 32 says. What we find out later is he went to a city called Bethsaida. Bethsaida, remember on our map, we're over here on the west side toward the top of the Sea of Galilee, is up here at the very top corner, at least the best we can tell. Your map will always have a question mark right there because they're not positive. But Bethsaida would have been across the top of the Sea of Galilee, up over to the eastern side a little bit. It was kind of a secluded place. Not much going on up that way. Most of the cities were down there along the west side. That's where all the, the fishermen lived and the towns were and, and all those other things. Not many people went up to Bethsaida. It was up there to the north. They went there and that was their place of rest. That was their quiet, secluded place they wanted to get to. And they needed that. The food and the rest, and a little personal instruction, and a little more time to quiz them on how things went, you know, and, and give them the advice they needed. There, there's something so compassionate and, and even wise in what Jesus said in verse 31. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Some of us can get very busy, can't we? very active in things, especially some that really invest in uh, the ministry to people. I, I think when I think of busy people, I think of men like D.L. Moody. He was non-stop. If you ever read his biography, you sit there and you're tired at the end of every chapter just by reading what he did. For example, he thought he needed to share Christ with somebody every single day. Not a bad idea, huh? Uh, and so when he got to the end of the day, if he had not shared Christ with somebody, he got dressed and went back out looking for the first person he could find. Because he says, my day's not complete unless I've shared Christ with somebody. Um, one particular instance, he went out on the street to share Christ with somebody, and down the street, way down the street, was this young girl. And she had come to a Sunday school class before, and he wanted to talk to her about the Lord. And she hadn't come for a while. And so he says, well, there's one, I'm going to go talk to her. And he started down the sidewalk toward her. She saw him, turned around and went the other way as fast as she could. He's kind of a big guy, alright? You ever see his picture? He's, he's not a little guy. But he had to pick up the speed. And he's coming down the sidewalk, up and down the street, and she's going on ahead. And she goes running down, and she turns right into a bar. And in through the front door. And he went right through the front door too. And she went right through the place and out the back door. And he went right out the place into the back door. And she got up on the stairs outside, went all the way up to the floor above it, and into the house. And he followed right behind her. 
And she goes into her house. That was her house, by the way. Her mother lived there. And she goes into her bedroom and under the bed. And guess where he pulls her out from? <laughs> He's dragging her out from under the bed. He shared Christ with her, led her to the Lord and her mother that night. And I said, ooh, that's cool. But I just thought, what a, what a guy this was. Busy, busy, busy. He had to share Christ with somebody. Uh, that's, that's the kind of person I think, who's busy with the Lord like that? That's kind of neat to me. It's inspiring to me. But this is what J.C. Ryle wrote in reference to that. Come apart and rest for a while. This is what he said. Our Lord knows well that his servants must attend to their own souls as well as the souls of others. He knows that a constant attention to public work is apt to make us forget our own private soul business. And that while we are keeping the vineyards of others, we are in danger of neglecting our own. He reminds us that it is good for ministers to withdraw occasionally from public work and look within. Come ye apart, he says, into a desert place. There are few unhappily in the church of Christ who need these admonitions. But there are but few in danger of overworking themselves and injuring their own bodies and souls by excessive attention to others. The vast majority of professing Christians are indolent and slothful and do nothing for the world around them. When I was starting to settle in on this rest thing, boy, he put a zinger on there. I said, ooh, ooh, <laughs> that, that hurt suddenly. How he turn that immediately around and say, you know, that applies to some, a few, but the vast majority of profession Christians are slothful and do nothing for the world around them. All right, that's not our sermon tonight. It's just, boy, did that hit my heart. That's the kind of thing you read when you're reading J.C. Ryle, how he would do that. And uh, if you just heard those words and, and the old phrase, if the shoe fits, right, we should wear it. But now, all that just to set up the events that we're about to look at. You got it so far. He's rejected by his own town folk. He's sending his disciples out to preach in towns. He's hearing of the death of his cousin John the Baptist. He needs a place of recluse. He needs to charge the battery, so to speak. He needs to get away with his disciples. He goes in a boat all the way over to that place. And verse number 33 pops on the page. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities. That's going all the way up the west side of the Sea of Galilee, across the top to Bethsaida. They took off running. That, by the way, if you kind of map it out, if it's from Capernaum, that's a good five or six mile journey. And back then, that's not an easy task. Especially if you if you look at a kind of map that shows the topography of the land too. This was hilly land as well. And it's not an easy place to go up and down and up and down. Uh, but the people from the cities around that area where the disciples had been ministering were watching where would Jesus go now. And they saw him moving. And so they, they rushed there. And matter of fact, they got there before he did. He was in the boat. And when he pulls up on the shore in verse 34 he saw the large crowd waiting think of this you know his, his, his schedule and all he just went through if that was you and you were in his sandals and you got out of the boat and you saw that big crowd there you're thinking what 
<laughs> Let's head back, guys. Let's see if they can do 10 miles today, right? You would probably say, oh, I planned a quiet retreat here. I planned something, in, you know, something more personal. I, I felt like I needed a rest. My disciples needed rest and all those things. You know, our human side here would pop out, wouldn't it? And say, ooh, tough stuff. He saw the crowds, verse 34, and he felt compassion on them. First thing it says, he felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And secondly, he began to teach them. It turned into a Bible conference. He started teaching them. Matter of fact, from the way we glean from the text, that was several hours worth of teaching. That would have been quite a long thing to do, on top of all that he already did. But again, Ryle says, we read that he was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep without a shepherd. They were destitute of teachers. They had no guides but the blind scribes and the Pharisees. They had no spiritual food but man-made traditions. Thousands of immortal souls stood before the Lord, ignorant, helpless, and on the high road to ruin. It touched his gracious heart. He was moved with compassion toward them. He began to teach them many things. He saw them. He saw them and their great need. I, I couldn't help when I'm going through a passage like that to just reflect on things. To stop and look at things. We, you know, we get very ministry minded. I don't know if you have this or not, but, uh, we forget that there are those who do not know the truth. It's a comfortable thing to be in a Bible church where we say, open your Bible, open your Bible, open your, and you're, you're in it. In Sunday school, you're in it here in the worship services, you're in it in your Bible studies during the week. We're just constantly saying, open your Bible, open your Bible. How many places never open it? Even on a Sunday. How many people don't even have one? And that's strange in a country like ours where they're everywhere. And they're Gideons passing them out to people who, where, why don't they have a Bible? Little, even kids say, I don't have one of those. Does that still amaze you? This is the 21st century. This is America. We have Bibles everywhere. And people who don't have them. We, we have the Word just all around us. And we could get so immersed in our little cocoon of, of Bible study that we forget there's people who don't know the truth. It's easy when we just focus right here. I spend a lot of time for myself. I teach Christians. <laughs> the majority of the folks here in our church. The people I've taught in Bible colleges and stuff. I'm not sitting there thinking, boy, I could better get evangelistic with my Bible class. You know? Because I'm used to the fact that many of them are already uh, believers. Many of them are, are training to go into future pastor or ministry kind of uh, modes. And I'm thinking, well, okay, I'm immersed in that. That's my life. I spend a lot of time with that. The picture here is Jesus went off to minister to his disciples and ended up with a bunch of lost sheep. And it's a rather interesting thing here. What's even more amazing is that the people were coming to him. They were coming to him. Far too often, it's, 
It's us needing to go to them. It's, it's that kind of a strange world we live in. Missions and such. We get ourselves trained here so we could go overseas there to reach these people or that people or this tribe or this group or whatever. We, we go into the prisons because, well, they can't come to us. <laughs> so we go to them. And we go out to share. We go out to share. We go out to share. When I was a, a pastor many years ago in Butler, Indiana, just north of Fort Wayne, which... Uh, I know James would know where that is. Uh, Butler, Indiana, we were up there in a very small town of about 2,000 people. I used to think that was small. And then I moved here. And I said, whoa, this is small. But we, we did have a gas station, all right? At least we had a gas station. Um, we had a McDonald's, too, by the way. It went in just as we moved into town. They were building it. They must have thought, well, the Courtney's are coming. Let's build a McDonald's. But uh, they, they put in a McDonald's. But I was in this little town of 2,000 people, a church of 25. It had been around a while. It's a 50-year-old church. We were in a building that was 100 years old. Uh, cute little place, very comfortable little place. Nice Bible church, wonderful people. And uh, my job was to help it. <laughs> it, had, it had a timer going as far as they were concerned. They mapped out how long their money would last and when they were going to close their door. And they set it for four years. And they said, at the end of four years, we're done. And they called us in. I was serving with the Indiana Bible Church mission at the time, and we went in to rescue the church. And so our family moved into town. I moved into their little parsonage, uh, and we got to work. We did go beyond five years, by the way. Matter of fact, the church lasted another eight years after that. But it's, it's not there any longer. Um, but it was nice to see it extended. That was a, that was one of our goals we hoped for. But uh, anyway, while I was there, uh, one of my jobs was I went door to door to every single person's home in that town, which wasn't a hard thing to do. I could do it in one day, all right? And I'd go up and down, and I'd give them flyers, introduce myself. I'm pastor of the church down the street, you know, and all these kind of things. And very few wanted to talk to me. They took my flyer, probably tossed it in the trash after I walked away. But I, I attempted that on several occasions. And one day, this was very interesting. The phone rings, and I pick it up, and there's a man on the other side. His daughter had started attending our Awana clubs. We put on an Awana club on Wednesday night. And she started to attend our Awana clubs, and he said to me, I didn't even know him, he said, uh, would you come over here and tell me how I can know Christ? What a great invitation! I said, whoa, this has never happened before. Yes, I told, I'll be right over. Went over there, talked to him for several hours. He never accepted Christ. Isn't that astounding? I said, what? Okay, but that, that was like... A sudden, you know, excitement, and then at the end you think, what happened here? Didn't quite get it. And I thought, well, that's a strange occur occasion. And so a few weeks later or so, the doorbell rings. And I go to the front of the house and open it up. There's another father there from another girl in our one clubs. And uh, he had the flyer I gave to him two years earlier. He had stuck it on his refrigerator door, and he left it there, and the day came when he needed help. 
And he pulled off that flyer and walked around to the front of our church, rang the doorbell of the parsonage, and says, I want to talk to you. He came to know the Lord that day. And I said, isn't that an interesting thing? How often does that happen that somebody calls you on the phone and says, would you tell me about Christ? How many of them ever rang your doorbell and did that? Look at this picture again. Jesus steps out of the boat, and these people are coming to him. And they are the ones that have no shepherd. They, they, don't have, they don't have these things. And Jesus was willing to give his time and his effort, his teaching. He had his disciples. He had a lot on his mind. But their need was right in front of him. He had compassion. I love that part of the story. I love what he just did. And so he spent time with them. In verse 35 it says, it became quite late. So this has gone on for a while. We don't know the timing exactly, but it's already quite late. The disciples come to him and say, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Obviously you know what he's going to ask. Why don't you send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat? Technically, on a map, that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> there were not a lot of towns and villages on that end of the, of the sea. As you know, most of them were down around Capernaum, down on the other side. But I still ask that question. Fishermen with fishermen boats right there on the shore, and why didn't they just go out and catch something? But they didn't see that, and probably tired themselves. And you know how people think. They think, well, this is too much. Lord, just... Let them go home. Let them go someplace and get something to eat. There's no McDonald's there. Where do they go? Knocking on people's doors? Could you imagine that? Would you like 150 people knock on your door and say, we're hungry? That would take you by surprise, wouldn't it? So, Jesus looks at them, and this is what's interesting, because this is such a special miracle. All four Gospels record it, and that's rare. Outside of the crucifixion of Christ and His resurrection, not all Gospels say the same things. But this one pops out from all four Gospels. They talk about this particular event. He said to them, you give them something to eat. But you've got the miracle powers. You give them something to eat. Isn't that a great response? They're like, um, that's not what we expected to hear. I thought you'd like the idea we were here for rest. Send them away. Those kind of things. You give them something to eat. Now don't forget, nothing was prepackaged. Nothing here was in a microwave. You could whip it right out. Anything that is to feed this many people had to be cooked. Had to be prepared. Even bread was something that you had to work on. You didn't just have a stockpile of bread for 5,000 people, did you? Nobody would. So, he says, you feed them. And of course, their response was, well, <laughs> you know how much money that would take? 200 denarii? Denarii was considered a, a wage for a man for a day. That'd be 200 days, two-thirds of a year of wages needed to buy this lunch or this dinner, as it was. It was late. They said, we, we, where are we going to get that money? And you know what Judas did? He kind of stuffed the bag a little deeper in his pocket, didn't he? Because he said, you know, you're not touching that. 
That's important money. That's dedicated money to what? Himself. <laughs> so he, he's tucking the bag down further. Their disciples are like, I don't know how we're supposed to buy all this. Not thinking once about going out to get it themselves. Not thinking that way. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. They had to go and find out. They didn't have it. So they started walking among the people to say, you got any bread? You got any bread? You got any bread? Wouldn't that be an odd thing if you're there in a Bible conference of sorts and you're listening to all this and then the disciples are walking around asking for your bread? Do you got bread? Yeah, okay. Here, have this. Here, have this. Out of 5,000 people, there's five loaves. That's not much. That means nobody came prepared for a long day of conferences. Nobody came expecting that they were going to get hungry. They didn't come prepared for that. They found two fish. Two fish! These great fishermen. We got two fish. That's it. I think it almost makes me laugh just to read that. We got five loaves and two fish. You know, that can make maybe about four good sandwiches. You know, those subway style. Or something like that. But still, who's going to eat the raw fish? I know some people might. But... uh, (laughs) I'm not going to eat raw fish, I'll tell you that much. What do we do with raw fish? you got to cook that. Put time in here. Put natural events of, of things cooking and things like that. Jesus just looks up and says, okay, everybody sit down. Sit down. Sit down by groups on the grass. And they sat in groups of hundreds and fifties. You've got to be puzzled. How's this going to work? The disciples are thinking, okay, he's got to come up with a good one now. Because we've got them all segregated into their little groups here. And how are we going to do that? They didn't have enough to feed one group. Not one group. Just a couple, maybe, within a group. But they all were sitting down. And it says in verse 41, he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. I like that. Do you pray before you eat? Just a question. But you know the Lord provided that for you. And we're told to be thankful people. And there's at least three times a day you could pray. If you have snacks, add that too. Have you ever thanked him for a snack? Just wondering. But here the Lord just prayed. He thanked his father for the food. He blessed the food. And he broke the loaves. And he kept giving. I love that. He kept giving. He kept giving. Giving. He kept giving. He kept giving. <laughs> Isn't that a great miracle? It's just coming. Hand it, hand it, hand it, hand it to the disciples. And the disciples are taking this. And then Jesus worked on the fish and he started to divide that up. And the disciples are carrying these baskets of the bread and the fish to each of these groups. Everybody ate. Everybody Just stop and think about that for a minute. There were 5,000 people, right? At least it says 5,000 men. Some commentators said, well, you got to add women and children to that number, and maybe it was a whole lot more. But that's at least 5,000 people who ate, and it says in verse 42, and were satisfied. They didn't get a sample. They got a meal. I love that. 
He gave them a meal. He didn't just give them a, 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 a mere, let's, let's get you by here and we'll be okay, a little cracker, a little peanut butter, you know, we'll be done with this. He fed them a meal from five loaves and two fish. 5,000 people ate. And by the way, it says in verse 43, they took baskets out to collect the rest. And there were 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also of the fish. I like that miracle. That's very impressive to me. I want to note a couple of things with you just for a few minutes here. Just thoughts. Think of his power for a minute. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ on display right here. He, he fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. We are told very clearly those disciples had nothing to share. There was nothing, they had to go out and ask, who's got bread? Who's got fish? There was nothing to give them outside of a small handful of things, and he fed 5,000 people with that. That is not taxing on him, by the way. Because he did kind of create this world too, didn't he? And I once figured this out, uh, and I don't have all the numbers exactly in my head, but someday I'll pull them out and I'll show them to you. But remember when he was feeding manna to the people in the wilderness? For 40 years, he provided manna for them. And I know he doubled the supply on Friday so that Saturday it would be enough for that. So that was two days anyway. For the equivalent of seven days, every day of the week, he provided enough manna for every single people. There were two million people. Every single day, they had enough for a full day supply of food in that manna. And I once figured this out, and I said, okay, so how much would that take to feed that many people? And they do tell you it was like a homer or something like that. And so I used some mathematical figures to, based on the pint size and all this stuff of what it was like, times 2 million people, times 7 days a week, times 40 years. Because he was faithful all the way through. And the picture I came up with was this. Because I was packing it into to size, into boxes in my mind. And I had this image of, I believe it was 40 trains with some 80 cars in each train. Absolutely full of the boxcars coming into camp every single day to feed these people. And I said, that's astronomical. And yet we read it and say, oh, he gave manna to him." Yeah, he fed 5,000 people. You ever try that? I mean, you've got to plan that one. And he broke the bread, had nothing to give but what he shared with them. And it says that everybody ate and was satisfied. That's, a, that's just quite a picture. Uh, the whole provision of their sustenance was only five loaves and two fish. Only. And he took those, he blessed them, and he gave them, and they eat, ate, and they were filled. And 12 baskets left. It wasn't just enough to feed everybody, that the last person got the last piece. The disciples still said, see me coming out, they said, whoa, 12 more basketful. They were taken up. 
creative power. Ever stop to see how the Lord showed that through his ministry? What he could do? He gave them something. And this is what Ryle said I thought was interesting. He gave them something real, solid, substantial, must manifestly have been called into being because it didn't exist just before. He, he kept multiplying. There is no room left for the theory that the people were under the influence of an optical delusion. They would have never been satisfied. This wasn't a heated imagination. 5,000 hungry people. And they received into their mouth real bread and real fish. If it was not, I think somebody would have said so. Twelve basketful of fragment would have never been taken up if the five loaves had not been miraculously multiplied. In short, it is plain that the hand of him who made the world out of nothing was present on this occasion. What would you have done to see that miracle? Would you have sat there in awe? Who is this person? Who is this one who does this kind of thing? He was the one who first created all things. He sent manna down from the desert, and he spread a table in the wilderness. This is Ryle's words, and I think, oh, that's sweet to read that. But that's, that's our Savior. That's our Savior. How many times have we thought, you know, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I don't have enough. Whatever it is, enough that we need. And we have a need, and we say, I don't have enough. I don't know how I'm going to make it. Give me wisdom to know who to ask, where to go, what to do, all this kind of things. How, how many times have you ever stopped and said, but Lord, you could provide. You could provide it. I'm not saying that you just sit down and say, okay, do nothing. He might say, go out and find five loaves and, and a few fish, and let's see what we do. But all in this, do we know who he is? That's a great thing to remind us. His incredible, his incredible power. A second thing noted is his incredible compassion. He saw their need. He met it and exceeded it. He went just beyond feeding them. They were satisfied. He went beyond providing. There were 12 baskets left. It was, it was an abundance of things. And yet, how many times do we go to him in prayer and say, Lord, I just need enough to squeak by here. And he surprises you. and says, I can show you the better. I love that. He's able to give more than we ask or think. One commentary said years ago, he says, the problem is we don't think very much. <laughs> but he could provide more. Abundantly more. Here's what he said. Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, go into your inner room. Close the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many needs, or their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. That's my favorite verse on prayer. He already knows. So why do I pray? I need the lesson in prayer. He doesn't. He doesn't need informed about what's happening in my life today. He doesn't need a catalog of, Lord, if you were here, I, you would have seen all this, but you know, let me tell you. 
We're not the news. He already knows. Matter of fact, he even knows what you need. Isn't that cool to know? So why, why the prayer? Because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to depend upon him. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to come. We have a Heavenly Father who gives us access to prayer. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You're allowed to pray. You're allowed to talk to the God of the universe and say, I've got a need. You're allowed to do that. That's a beautiful thing we have. Second thing, he, he's also one who cares for our needs. He not only knows our needs, which are great, but he cares for our needs. I read to you from Matthew 6. You might have known it was about verse 6 and 7 and 8. But here later in the chapter, Matthew six twenty-five, listen to this one. For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as what you eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you are to put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not worth much more than the, Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the fields grow. They do not toil, they do not spin. Yet, I say to you, that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Boy, that's one to stop and look at. These these little creatures, insignificant flowers and all the rest... The Lord cares for them. And the big question is, don't you think he cares a lot more for you? Jesus didn't die for a lily. He died for you. Think about that. Who does the Father love? He loves you. Then Matthew 7, starting in verse 7, about four or five verses here. Ask and it be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, when his son asks for a loaf, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you what is good? If you ask him. Hmm. Those are precious things. Jesus just showed that, a simple little picture, feeding 5,000 people. He showed the power of God to create, and he showed the compassion of God to care for their needs. Would you have liked to have sat there and had that meal? At the end of the day, what do you do? You just got his touch, his healing, you got his food, you got his attention, you got his teaching, you got his time, you got his compassion, you got his love, you got all those things because he was willing to give it. I love the story. I just love the story. When when Peter's writing and Peter we believe influenced Mark and might have been telling Mark this gospel because Mark wasn't one of the disciples. 
but Peter was, and, and we tend to think that maybe it was Peter's word that he's telling Mark, write this, write this, write this down, write this down. And maybe that's what happened here. But when Peter writes his gospel, or his epistle, he says in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, in verse 2 and 3, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. What are you lacking? What are you lacking? From Jesus, you're lacking nothing. Isn't that wonderful to read? Get to know the one who gives you all this. It's, it's all given to you for life, everything you need for godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Here's Ryle's last words from the commentary I'll share with you. We live in the midst of an evil world. 1800s, right? And see few of us, few with us, and many against us. We carry within us a weak heart, too ready at any moment to turn aside from the right way. We have near us at every moment a busy devil, watching constantly for our halting and seeking to lead us into temptation. Where shall we turn for comfort? Where shall we keep faith alive and preserve us from sinking into despair? There is only one answer. We must look to Jesus. We must think on his almighty power and his wonders of old time. We must call to mind that he can create food for his people out of nothing and supply the wants of those who follow him, even in the wilderness. And as we think on these thoughts, we must remember that this is the same Jesus that still lives and never changes, and is, and is on our side. Isn't that precious? I told you when I heard this several weeks ago, I said, boy, I want to share this with somebody. This was precious to my soul to read. Because we live in a pretty evil day too, don't we? We have the same Jesus. And he's got power, and he's got compassion. And those are beautiful things that we just saw in this story. So, something to think about. Take it out sometime this week and read through it. And look again at that picture. Matthew ch or Mark chapter 6. Start around verse 33 and work through 44. Easy numbers to remember. And look at Jesus again. And be amazed. It's quite a passage for that. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time in your word tonight. Just a, another glimpse of Jesus. And that's precious to our souls. Thank you for showing us how great he is. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our provider. He's the one who has love for our soul. And we don't go through this world without him. Thank you for that. Thank you for the preciousness of these words here tonight that we read in your word. May they impact our hearts. May they lift us up before you as grateful, loving children who can walk out into a world like this today and tomorrow and know that you're with us. What a beautiful thing it is. We thank you for that. And I pray this week for the folks of our church as we go through it, that you're blessed. Strengthen each one of us. Draw us closer to you. Help us to walk the way we ought to. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Protect us, Lord, from the evil one in this world. And help us to just uh, set a good example for the those around us. 
People need to see Jesus, and may they see him in us. We ask for all these things tonight, knowing that you're the God who can give it, and in abundance. In Jesus' name, amen.